This morning's passage comes from Nehemiah 2, 11 through 3, 2. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those first responders? that would have moved into the rubble of the World Trade Centers after the planes had crashed into them back in 2001 and they collapsed. Imagine just what they walked into. The carnage, the devastation, the overwhelming sense of despair. Or imagine what it would have been like uh, to walk back into the path of the EF5 tornado that racked uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama years ago and actually cut a swath through a large area of homes just utterly destroyed, piles of wood and just rubble to walk into that situation and to be overwhelmed with the devastation and with, and with the despair of how rebuilding is going to happen. Those are probably not too far similar to what, I, uh, to what Nehemiah walked into when he walked back into Jerusalem and saw the, the gates and the walls of Jerusalem that had been burned and destroyed by fire. You know, this had happened, the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem had happened almost 100 years earlier. So he walks into a situation of utter devastation, rubble, stones, piles, just utter destruction. He walks into that and realized he walked into something that had been laying like that for hundreds of years. Now, they had sort of started the rebuild, but it was an absolute mess. And you can imagine what Nehemiah was facing. 
when he saw that, and when he realized 100 years is a long time, there were generations, some of the exiles had returned, some actually never were completely exiled out. And so generations of people living in the midst of utter devastation, probably to the point of realizing or thinking, maybe this is just how life goes. We just are gonna live in this destruction. We're gonna live in this devastation. We're in trouble, we're in shame, but that's just the new normal. Oftentimes, when we enter lives and we enter communities and we enter families that have been devastated by sin, that have been absolutely broken down by sin, we enter into that and there's a, there's a despair. There's an overwhelming sense of how is God gonna rebuild this? Because everything I see is just carnage. And in my human perspective, I don't see how in the world something new can rise up out of this. That's what Nehemiah faced. And oftentimes that's what we face. And it raises the question, how does God rebuild? How does God rebuild a troubled people? Which is a category we all fall into to varying degrees. How does God rebuild a troubled people. And we're gonna ask three questions to answer that one. What is being rebuilt? Who is rebuilding? And then how is he rebuilding? So let's start with what is being rebuilt. Spoiler alert. If you read this book of Nehemiah and all you read is a construction project with good leadership principles, you have absolutely missed it. It's not worth reading. This is not a book about good leadership principles. This is a riveting story, a riveting story of how God is rebuilding his people. That is front and center, the heart of what this book is about. Now, what exactly is being rebuilt? Look at verses 11 and 12. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Word appears twice in those verses. What is the significance of Jerusalem? To really understand the scope of what Nehemiah is doing here, you have to understand the beginning and the end of Jerusalem. It's beginning. King David builds a royal city, Jerusalem, right, to govern and oversee the 12 tribes of Israel. And he does that in response to God's promise that we read in 2 Samuel 7.10. The Lord says, I will appoint a place, Jerusalem, for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. We read in the Psalms where King David prays his hopes and desires over Jerusalem. In Psalm 122, verses six to seven, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, David says. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. 
This explains why the, the devastation and the destruction of Jerusalem was such a big deal. Because God's people, their hope was built around Jerusalem. That it was to be the place that was going to bring healing from all that they were facing. And then, of course, Isaiah prophesies that Jerusalem would one day be rebuilt after it was devastated. And he speaks of the Lord's love for Jerusalem in Isaiah 62, 4. The Lord says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be my delight, called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And so true to his promise, God sends Nehemiah to do that very thing, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild God's people. Of course, the rebuilding of Jerusalem ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Luke chapter two, verse 38, Jesus is spoken of as the one to whom all were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that marches us to the book of Revelation, to the end of the story of redemption and yet the beginning of eternity, but the end of the story of redemption where we see the perfect marriage of God and humankind in Christ, what's called the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Why, am I, why did I go through that? So that you can see that the earthly rebuild of Jerusalem in Nehemiah finds its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem that's being built by Jesus. That perfect marriage between God and mankind as God intended in the very beginning, in the beginning of the story, in Genesis 1 and 2. And the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, speak to, speaks to this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones, a spiritual house. What is being built here? Ultimately, when we work through all the way to the fulfillment of it, what is being built is the church, not a brick and mortar building but a people, a community of people who are being renewed. When we get to chapter three and it actually starts to detail the rebuild of the wall of Jerusalem, talks about the, the door being set and the beams being laid and the, the bolts being put in the doors. When you read that, what you need to read is living stones, the building up of God's family, of the spiritual house. When you read chapter three, it's, it's, it's reading about the person whom Jesus rescued from addiction, being added as a living stone into the body of Christ, into the spiritual house of faith. Or the person who has been rescued out of enslavement to a career by Jesus as a living stone being added to the body of Christ, into the spiritual house of faith. 
or the person whom Jesus rescued from spiritual pride and self-righteousness, who as a living stone is being added into the spiritual house, into the body of Christ, or the person whom Jesus rescued from the empty pursuit of pleasure, that as a living stone is being added to the body of Christ, added to the spiritual house of faith. What is being rebuilt? People. People. A family, a community. And that's called the church. Second question. Who is rebuilding? Who's doing the rebuilding? Who is the builder? In verse 13, Nehemiah begins his reconnaissance mission to inspect the broken walls of Jerusalem. He says, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And in verse 14, we learn of the, the nature of this destruction near the king's pool. You read that? It says that Nehemiah on his animal, he was on some sort of animal walking through the city. He couldn't even get past the wall near the king's pool because it was such a pile of rubble. And the point there is to see there is utter devastation similar to what we see in our own lives, in people, in families, in communities, just the utter destructive nature of sin. Nehemiah sees the wall utterly broken down, can't pass by it. Why did Nehemiah do this inspecting? He did it for three days, it says. He inspected the walls because he wasn't gonna go off of secondhand information. He wanted firsthand, a firsthand look at the devastation. Why did he do it at night, right? It says that he did it at night. He didn't tell the, the priests, the nobles, the officials. Why? Because he didn't wanna give them a half-baked plan and he also knew that years earlier that the, that the rebuilding was stopped by, his enemy, by the enemies who convinced the king that they were a threat and authority. Right, so he, he knows there's gonna be major opposition. And so he spends three days, he goes out at night to inspect, to figure out what the problem is before he ever comes public with what he's about to do. But he finally gets to that in verse 17. Look what he says. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or disgrace, or shame. Did you notice what Nehemiah said there? He doesn't say, you see the trouble that you are in. He says, you see the trouble that we are in. Now, Nehemiah had just come from Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. And I reminded you last week, he had a cush job. He was paid well. He had good benefits. He was very comfortable as the cupbearer to the king in Persia. And yet he left that. And he came to Jerusalem. And we see here that he absolutely, that he completely identified with the people in Jerusalem that were in trouble and full of shame. He took on their trouble. He took on their shame and said, look at this trouble that we are in. It is a stunning picture of incarnation. 
It's a stunning picture of what it means to take on someone's trouble and to take on someone's shame and to enter into the pain of another. Christian minister John Dixon, he was speaking on the theme of God has wounds on a university campus in Sydney, Australia. And after he spoke on this theme of God having wounds, he opened it up for questions. And there was a Muslim man who rose to explain this. How preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. And Dixon said his remarks were intelligent, they were clear, they were civil. The man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. And Dixon thought for a minute, and he, he couldn't come up with a witty response or a kind of a knockdown argument, and he finally thanked the man for highlighting what is the unique claim claims of the Christian faith. And Dixon went on to say this. He concluded what this Muslim man denounced as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. Jesus put on your trouble. Jesus put on your shame. Jesus put on your sin. He put it on. Jesus doesn't just know about your pain. He knows your pain. Jesus just doesn't know about your suffering. Another way to say it, it's not just secondhand. He knows your suffering. Jesus doesn't just know about your sin. He knows your sin. Because the scriptures say, that he literally took your sin from you and put it on himself, that he owned it. He put it on himself, he died, and then he buried it. When we talk about Jesus identifying with you, he completely identifies. He completely identified with your trouble and with your shame. He's rebuilding you. He's rebuilding you by completely identifying you with you. That's how he is rebuilding you. But we see also that Nehemiah didn't just identify with the people. He, he exerted his authority over those who began to resist the rebuild. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, who are these cats? So 
They were men of power. They were governors of the cities and the provinces that surrounded Jerusalem and Judah. And they obviously were threatened by the rebuild of Jerusalem. But here's the reality. They knew that Nehemiah wasn't rebelling against the king because they had gotten word of the letters that came from King Artaxerxes with Nehemiah about the change in policy that he was authorizing the rebuild. They also, they saw, heard about the military, military escort with Nehemiah from Persia to Jerusalem. I mean, it was loud and clear that the king had gave permission and authority for the rebuild. So they, they, were, they were bluffing. That's why there's no force behind what they're doing. They were employing fear tactics to try to stop this rebuild because they had no power to inflict any harm. All they could do was talk and threaten and harass and strike fear and steal joy. That's the only power they had as this rebuild was happening. And I love in verse 20 what Nehemiah says to them. Notice he doesn't appeal to the king's policy change, which was true and real. But in verse 20, he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem. He appeals to the God of heaven and God's authority and says, you enemies have no right, no portion, no claim. Now in chapter three, you're gonna see in chapter three as it starts to detail the rebuild, an important observation. The beginning of chapter three starts with the sheep gate. The end of chapter three concludes with the sheep gate. It starts and ends with the sheep gate. Say, what's the significance of that? Well, many years later, the greater Nehemiah would come, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 10, and he would say, I am the door, I am the gate to the sheep. Over my dead body, will you hurt my sheep? In fact, in John 10, towards the end, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus exerts his authority, proclaims his authority when he says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, when Jesus says no one, he means it. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's the language of a shepherd. Earlier in the chapter in John 10, it says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is asserting his authority over the evil one He's asserting his authority over sin. He is asserting his authority over brokenness. And the picture here throughout Nehemiah of these enemies is very similar to what the evil one does with us. He has no power to do anything but harass and steal joy. If you're in Christ, listen to this. If you're in Christ, meaning you have transferred your trust for salvation from yourself or your good works to Jesus Christ and what he did in living a perfect life and dying for you on the cross. 
If you have transferred your, your trust to Christ and you are in Christ, then evil, the devil, your sin have no power over you. Jesus Christ has the authority and the power. You belong to Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. And the authority of Christ speaks louder than your circumstances. The reality is in this world, we face times where our circumstances speak loud. Sometimes so loud that we forget the promises and the character of God and the authority of Jesus Christ. But if you're in Christ, there is nothing that has power over you. Christ has power. Christ has authority. Look what Nehemiah says in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. If you're in Christ, God can do nothing but good to you. If you're in Christ, God can do nothing but good to you. You ever been in a restaurant? Of course you have. When you've been in a restaurant and you're meeting with maybe your spouse, you're having dinner with your spouse or dinner with a friend or dinner with your family, there's background noise, isn't there, in the restaurant? You, you, there's background noise, but, but you're in a conversation with the person you're there with. The circumstances of your life, that's the background noise. God calls you to believe his character and his promises and his voice and his words. Those are the words that speak most loudly with whatever you're going through. Circumstances are background noise. Don't get those reversed. Don't let God's character, his promises, the authority of Christ be the background noise and your circumstances be the conversation you're having. Don't let that happen. Circumstances are background noise. So Jesus Christ is rebuilding his church. He is the builder. And he is rebuilding the church, which means lives, your life, personally. He's rebuilding it by identifying with you, completely identifying with you, and by exerting his authority over your sin, over your enemies. What is being rebuilt? A community of people called the church. Living stones. Who's rebuilding? Jesus Christ. Last question, how is Jesus rebuilding? How is he rebuilding? Look at the end of verse 18. The people said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Jesus builds his church through his people. Now, let me make a really important observation here. In this story of Nehemiah, this is the first time that the people who are in trouble and shame come into play. And I remind you that you and I are not Nehemiah. Nehemiah points us to Christ. We are the people in Jerusalem in trouble and in shame. Look at all that's happened before they ever responded. Jesus is the one who is rebuilding. We simply respond. 
And that brings us to chapter three, where the people begin to respond. They begin to build. We read the first two verses. The rest of the chapter is very similar, naming people and, and where they're working. But I want you to notice two very important observations from chapter three that help us understand how Jesus rebuilds. First observation, or the first truth is this, that Jesus rebuilds through a sacrificial people unified around a common mission. One of the things you notice in chapter three is there is a, a variety of people working on this wall. I mean, there's priests, pastors, goldsmiths, perfumers, district rulers, temple servants, gatekeepers, merchants. It's all hands on deck. Now, this is not the chapter that you go to to say, look how everyone is operating according to their spiritual gift. Okay, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12 for that, and that's true. This is a chapter of all hands on deck around a common mission. And so you've got perfumers swinging a hammer. Uh, you've got district rulers, you know, governors, people in high places of leadership, down in the dirt, laying the beam for the wall. You've got priests, pastors, putting bolts in the doors. Okay, professional and working classes rebuilding this wall around a common mission. White collar, blue collar, rebuilding this wall around a common mission. I love how Matthew Levering, he describes the situation this way. He says, priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, district rulers, temple servants, gatekeepers, and merchants seeking holiness by sacrificing their resources and endangering their lives so as to dwell with God in Jerusalem. God's people sacrificing, taking unpaid leave, whatever it looked like. Sacrificing, exposing themselves to harmful threats, all so that they could dwell with God in Jerusalem. We see here what happens when a people are gripped by a common mission. Extraordinary things happen. When a very diverse people, diversely gifted people, unite around a common mission. In 1781, towards the end of the American Revolution, the British troops were marching through Virginia. And they had arrived at Yorktown. And the American patriots were firing cannons into Yorktown to try to stop the advance of the British troops, led by Lord Cornwallis. And Thomas Nelson, who was the governor, then governor of Virginia, and, and one who signed the Declaration of Independence, he gathered the patriots together, and he pointed off at the distance at a, at a very large house, very beautiful, large brick house, mansion, and he said to the men, that's my house. It's, it's one of the largest houses there, and therefore I know that's where Cornwallis and his troops are. And then he ordered the American artillerymen to open fire on his home, launch cannons at it. Shortly after that, British troops surrendered. American Revolution came to an end. Here was a man who was willing to destroy his house for freedom. The way Jesus rebuilds his church and his people 
is through a people who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others finding their freedom in Christ, for the sake of people whose lives are enslaved by sin and broken down by sin. Jesus rebuilds through his people who are willing to sacrifice that others can find freedom. Second observation from chapter three on how Jesus rebuilds his church, living stones, community of people, is through a faithful people who own their part. As you read through chapter three, you'll notice that there are all these different gates in the wall. There's all these different sections in the wall and, and, and different people are working on different sections, but there's a repeating phrase that happens throughout chapter three that is absolutely striking. In verse 10, it says, next to Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. Then in verse 23, after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. Verses 28 to 29, above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. These people were owning the place where they lived. They were owning the section of the wall where they lived. They were owning their little part and rebuilding the wall where they lived. It's a beautiful picture that explains a lot of what we do and why we do what we do here at Christ Church East. It's the reason why we just commission community group leaders to go own the north side, own a neighborhood there. It's the reason why we have a vision to see churches planted in the various distinct neighborhoods and communities in the largest landmass city in the United States is to own a neighborhood, own a community. It's the reason why we do backyard Bible clubs out in the community, in the different parts of the city. It's because we wanna own the city, we wanna own our neighborhood. The message here is own your neighborhood. The place where the walls are broken down. Own your neighborhood, own your apartment complex. Own your dorm. Own it for the sake of Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Don't get overwhelmed with the whole. You know, N.T. Wright shares the, the illustration of building a large cathedral wall or a building and how the, you know, there's stones that make up the wall. There's the master mason that's walking around to each of his masons and, and one mason is sitting there just working on a stone and the master mason comes up and says, hey, yeah, trim that edge a little bit more, smooth that out, chip that off. And then once it gets to the, exactly how the master mason wants it, he takes it and then he puts it in the wall. That we don't get overwhelmed with the whole. It's very easy to look at the whole and get overwhelmed. Jesus says, just own your part. Just own your part that I've given you and be faithful to own your part. I'll take care of the big picture. I'll take your work and I'll work it out for the purposes of the kingdom. Here's maybe just phraseology that'll help. Quit trying to change the world. You don't change the world. Jesus does. 
Jesus Christ changes the world. Now he calls you into his story of changing the world. And he gives you a small task that's part of a bigger picture that he's putting together of changing the world. But just own your part. Be faithful to your part. Jesus, we prayed it with the commissioning of the leaders. Jesus is the missionary. He is the builder. He's the one that's rebuilding. We are simply following and being faithful to what he's called us to do. Whatever little part he gives us. One of the most unique sporting events in the world didn't start out as a sporting event. If you're familiar with the Iditarod in Alaska, it's that over, over a thousand mile race where there's dogs and sleds and riders and they go from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska. It's a sporting event, it's entertaining. It didn't start that way. In 1925, there were hundreds of kids, children in Nome that had been diagnosed with diphtheria. And at the time, it was a disease. There was not widespread vaccinations for it. And so the vaccination for diphtheria, the serum, was in Anchorage. And so to get the, the serum from Anchorage to Nome to where these kids were dying, they put together a relay team of dogs, sleds, and riders. Over 150 over 150 people, riders, over 20 or so dogs, and they stationed them in a relay from Anchorage to Nome. And they got there in 127 hours. It's a record that still has yet to be beat as they carried this serum to Anchorage where lives were saved. That was the beginning of the Iditarod. It's changed. It's very easy for the church to lose sight of its life-giving mission. It's very easy for the church to become just a, an event. It's very easy for the church to become something that you just check the box on. You know, what's the difference between the Iditarod in 1925, that first one, and what it is today? Well, what's the same? Still got dogs, you still got sleds, you still got people, riders, you still got the same general path from Anchorage to Nome? What's the difference? They don't carry serum today on the trip. If the church loses sight of the gospel, and by the gospel, I mean the good news that Jesus Christ left the comforts of heaven to put on flesh in this dark, sinful world to be hated, rejected, flogged, flogged mocked, crucified, to die, to raise from the dead, to ascend to heaven, then send his spirit to fill his people so that his people are now continuing the earthly mission of Jesus. That's the gospel. If the church loses sight of the gospel and fails to carry the gospel, then the church just becomes an event. We talk about playing church, that's how it happens when the church loses sight of the gospel. Verse 17, you see the trouble we are in. Come, let us build the walls. Jesus, as the missionary, the one who builds his church, says, you see the trouble we're in. You see the trouble all around you. Come, let us build. Let's pray.
Father, would you forgive us for losing sight of the mission of the church? Would you forgive us for losing sight of the mission that permeates the entire story of the scriptures? Of you coming to rescue a people and at the end, you and your people dwelling in a perfect marriage. Jesus, between your first and second coming, you have called your people, the church, to carry the gospel. This good news, this life-saving news, this news of freedom to the world around Oh, Father, we long as recipients of your grace in Jesus Christ, as ones who have been blessed to be those who bless, as ones who have been drawn in to be those who are sent out, to ones who have received the gospel and all the comfort and the joy that comes with it to then carry it to others. Father, as we come to the Lord's table later in this service, we pray that we would eat and drink you, Jesus, and be filled and be strengthened to respond with come, let us build. I pray this all in Christ's name, amen.